Are you a brick wall, a jellyfish or a backbone parent? Which one works best? Get your questions and comments into us, 2101 on text here in the studio, also 9 to noon at rnz.co.nz. Neuroplasticity educator and parenting expert Nathan Wallace is here to tell us all about it. Kia ora, Nathan. Kia ora, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, I'm pretty intrigued at these different parenting styles. Maybe you need to just walk us through the various different ones. Brick wall, first of all. Yeah, well, in academia, they've got really dry, boring titles. They're called authoritarian and authoritative and permissive. I'm sort of borrowing from Barbara Colorosa. She wrote a book in 1989 called Kids Are Worth It. And, you know, it's such a great book. I'm still quoting it now. <laughs> it was published in eighty. The brick wall parent is that shut up and do as you're told, kind of the sergeant major parent. Gives a very firm boundary, you know, um, flexibility to shut up and do it. Um, interestingly, most of the people in prison, they can identify what their parent style was at with brick wall. Um, yeah. Okay, what about a jellyfish then? Well, a jellyfish has so that's the parent that friends with their kids, wants to ma- maintain rapport. Um, you know, says, no, you can't have a biscuit, it's nearly tea time. Did you can't have a biscuit? Oh, a biscuit then. You know, those parents are caved, don't maintain a boundary. That's a jellyfish parent. We're just slightly struggling with the line to you, Nathan. So um, if you can stay okay. absolutely stock still like a statue, if that's not too much yep. of a brick wall thing to say to you at this yeah, okay. juncture. But um, <laughs> so, so if that's the brick wall and the jellyfish, um, what is a backbone, parent? Well, a backbone is support and structure, but it is flexible moment by moment. So that's kind of the ideal style. That's the gives you some boundaries, but they're not rigid like a brick wall. It really means that the parent negotiates the boundaries with the children and really sets off for making good decisions in adulthood, really, because they need to practice decision-making. Are people kind of dominated by one or other of these styles? Or actually, do we kind of go in and out of various different <laughs> styles of parenting? It's just a question of what you are most of the time. That's exactly right. I mean, people hear those styles and go, oh, I'm all three of them on any one given day. That's right. And different children have different styles from you. So most of us, I mean, traditionally, dad was a brick wall, was a jellyfish. In the middle of that, you got this backbone style of parenting. But now we don't have such clearly defined roles. A lot of you know, dads like me are attempting a bit brick wall and we're trying to move towards being backbone. And mum's is a jellyfish. Move towards. I mean, obviously it can be the other way around. A lot of people had a jellyfish dad and a brick wall mum. But, you know, stereotype. Yeah, and the different styles, of course, will result in very different outcomes. And you did mention the the thing about prison, and uh, that's something that a lot of people in prison identify with the with the brick wall. What are the other impacts that you see on children from the different parenting styles? Yeah, the the jellyfish ones, where the parent fails maintain, you know, to maintain a boundary. Usually, those kids get sorted at school. So. Um, Although it's not the ideal style, it's not really associated with lots of negative outcomes. Children find boundaries in other places. Like I said, it's the brick wall one that stops your child from making any decisions. I mean, we use a brick wall with parenting, if you like, because our dog doesn't have a front unit to practice decision-making. So we just say, sit, stay. Whereas if we sort of treat in the same way, they don't have the opportunity to develop you know, that extra intelligence, that decision-making in the frontal cortex. When I say to the kid, oh, it's snowing outside today, mate, you're going to have to wear your green or your blue jersey, which would you like? Even if he's two, he's making a decision. So that's like more of that backbone style. If I say, it's snowing outside, put your green jersey on, he's not making any decisions. Of course, if I say to a two, 
snowing outside today, what would you like to wear? Like a jellyfish, then he will choose, you know, Spider-Man togs, and that's inappropriate. So, yeah, the backbone style just gives them enough choice that's age-appropriate that allows them to be involved in decision-making. And so I suppose a level of consistency is important here. Partly, I suppose, that helps children feel safe to a certain extent. We've been having trouble with this line to Nathan, haven't we? It's been a a little bit scratchy, the line to Nathan Wallace. I think he's out in the sticks. Nathan Wallace, our parenting expert, can you hear me? I can hear you nice and clear. I don't know what happened then, just all reception disappeared. Phone and internet and everything just disappeared. I'm up by Lake Tickapool, so... Oh, beautiful. Well, isolated, I have to say, it's sounding better now than it was earlier. It sounded really quite scratchy, but here you are. In, okay, in great. glorious surround sound. So let's go back to talking a bit more uh, about the situation with these different parenting styles. And yep. we were talking a bit about consistency because how important is it for children to have that kind of security and knowing sort of which parent's going to turn up? Yeah, um, well, I mean, consistency is obviously important, but consistency is mainly important for children within that one person. As in, I have to be consistent in the way I interact with them and the expectations I have. I don't have to be 100% consistent with what my wife's doing, with what my mother's doing, with what my father's doing. Children bring up different relationship frameworks with different people. So it's more important that you're consistent within yourself as a parent. This question of balance, actually, is one that uh, we've had a, had a question in from Dee, one of our listeners, about this, saying, how do you work out the right balance? And the circumstance here that Dee is talking about, we have an only child, had birth problems, highly sensitive, has become anxious at the age of eight, uh, right. responds with extreme emotional outbursts when anything goes wrong, but then they're very apologetic within a very short time. So... You know, how, okay. do, how do parents kind of juggle that one when you're kind of waiting the next outburst and, and how to be effective as a, as a parent at the same time? Yeah, I think um, something's happened there with um, Dee's child where she basically has an on-off switch for her emotions, whereas the rest of us have a dimmer switch. So there's varying degrees of putting in place a boundary before we sort of outburst and get angry. And it sounds like she sort of holds it all on, holds it all on, and then has an outburst. And then is very apologetic afterwards. So I think she probably just needs opportunities to um, express how she feels about things. And that can be very difficult when you're eight because you don't have the language that we have as adults. Um, They take much longer to form their sentences. Um, Adults tend to interrupt and correct. So I would recommend today you should do a thing I call mate date where you set aside 10 minutes a week with your child and you've basically got to shut up as a parent. You're not allowed to lead, you're not allowed to ask questions, you're not allowed to correct. The kid basically owns you for that 10 minutes and you sit there and you just give them your full attention and pretty much do whatever they want if it doesn't hurt you. And the child then has the time to articulate how they feel about things. Then she can express what she's not happy about rather than holding on to it, holding on to it, and then exploding. Interesting stuff. And Dee, I hope that helps answer your question there. Um, some of these parenting styles, it sort of feels to me like they've, you know, their time has maybe passed. The brick wall sort of feels a bit old-fashioned. But yep. I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are people out there who um, who do that. While I'm saying that, I'm thinking, I'm sure I'm one of them every now and then, where you like, no, nope, yeah, well, here's the line, don't cross it. Yeah, I mean that's what that balance means, I suppose. When you're telling your child to get into the car seat, you know that whether they wear a car seat or not, your brick wall. You're not negotiating whether you're going to use a car seat or not. That's just a given. You know, when the kid's about to run out on the road, you're not going to start negotiating. You're going to be a brick wall. So there is obviously times, but I think that brick wall style permeates our parenting. Well, I know as a father, maybe it's just a man thing, but I think I start out in that place. 
I want the kids to do as they're told. Um, and I realise that that's not necessarily going to be good for them um, and that I, they're going to learn to make good decisions and I have to do that with like an apprenticeship. So I do have to negotiate. Um, yeah. How do people's parenting styles vary, not just across the ages and stages of the children, but also across different children? Because, you know, first yes, time round you're a different parent than, than subsequently. That's right. I mean, I hear that all the time, that different children evoke different styles. Often your negative style comes out for your mini me, the child that you know has your temperament and is most like you. They can be the one you find the most annoying because it's your personality coming back at you, and that tends to evoke a shorter, sharper, brick wall type of style. I think it's just being aware of that as a parent and knowing. And when you have that awareness, you can compensate. Mm. And so, what do people do if they feel that their parenting style isn't? getting the kind of results it isn't getting the kind of cut through they would like to see with their children what can you do about it um yeah i think then you seek help really you know yeah i go into youtube and look at some of the clips i've got do the um that mate date one i find that really turns things around for parents that when children get a chance to express how they feel about things that changes the whole relationship i'd also suggest that you look at the way that you communicate and the way that you interact because it's quite hard to change other people's behaviour, but it's relatively simple to change your own behaviour. So as a parent, I can change how I'm asking things, um, and I can change the expectations I've got and just how I'm speaking, and that then has an influence on how the child speaks. Like We like to think that um, you know, if, I, if I'm being negative, if I'm saying no fighting, no running, no hitting, I'm really filling up the kids' heads all the time with images of fighting, running, and hitting. If I instead change my behaviour and say, um, uh, walking inside, please, I use gentle hands with your sister. Now I'm starting to fill up their heads with, you know, pictures of the behaviours that I do want. So that's a relatively simple change for a parent to make, and it has a big influence on the children's behaviour. Yeah, that's good advice, certainly. Um, for new parents, what would your advice be or some tips that you can sort of point people in that direction? Because it's one of those yeah. things, isn't it? You get lots of advice about what you should do around, you know, pregnancy time or what you want to try to achieve, you know, around the time of the birth. But then actually parenting the child is a whole different ballgame. I think to me in the first year, it's just adult life that makes it complicated because it's very simple what what to do with the baby in the first year of life. Just completely indulge them, give in to them and do what you can to keep them happy. You know, if you get to be an at-home parent, then you can do that. You can get up when they get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and they're awake till 3 o'clock in the morning. You can do that because you can go back to bed the next day. The more you can in that first year of life, not try and put in routines or boundaries, or, but actually just keep the child calm, the more you feel connected and the more often the baby feels in partnership in that first year of life, the better all their outcomes will be for the rest of their life. The more often they feel alone in the first year of life, the less they'll reach their potential. So it's really just about being in partnership with your baby in the first year of life. And they'll start to invent their own routines about around about nine months, even when you're just following them, because that's where their, that's where their brain development's at. Um, they start to fall into routines around nine months and have some more regular sleeps. So I don't think you have to think about it a whole lot in that first year. It's really just about partnership and being attuned to your baby. Uh, if you have, though, got older children now and, you know, parenting advice comes yeah. and goes, um, yep. you know, this was not necessarily the same thing that was being talked about 15 years ago. So no. are there things you can do that um, will sort of help your children, will nurture them as they get older, even if, you know, the advice back in the day was, nope, let them cry it out. That's it. That's the way to make this work. Yeah. 
So if you've done that, you mean if you've done that previously as a baby, you've yeah. been crying and now they're older. Um, it takes a lot to wreck a kid. <laughs> I wouldn't feel guilty about it. Like Generations of children have been raised by putting on programs and told, nope, we're only going to feed you every four hours and we're only going to respond to you every four hours. And in the big picture of things, well, that didn't do them any good. Um, well, it kind of did do them good because poor children were dying. So telling children to be fed every four hours, and that comes from the days when they used to give them flour and water thinking it was just as good as milk. And so nutrition, and lots of babies died. So that advice was good at the time, but yeah, if we've done it now in the 1990s, the 2000s, it doesn't wreck the child. Your child's um, outcomes are made up of lots of different factors. So there's lots of things in the literature that tell us lead to good outcomes. Uh, things like learning a second language. Learning a second language, children increasingly have that opportunity now. Um, that changes the actual structure of your brain. It enhances your brain in a way that's going to allow you to regulate your emotion much better for the rest of your life. It's going to allow you to integrate sort of left and right brain things much better the rest of your life because it enhances this part of the brain called the corpus callosum which is a sort of a band of fibers in the center of the brain and it's responsible for those things like controlling your emotions your, uh, applying your intelligence so yeah being bilingual uh, learning a musical instrument is another one mm-hmm. that gives real advantages to the brain that um that you don't get from other things because the brain sort of sees music as another language so you get a lot of the benefits you get from another language um having your child stay with the same teacher for longer you know the so if the child's with a teacher for three years, they get a really high-quality relationship and a teacher that knows their learning styles really well and can cater to their learning. So we see that as a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. There's loads of things like that we can do. Interesting. Uh, we've just had another question in. Um, this is a little bit, I suppose it begins to touch on some of uh, you, what you've been talking about regarding the routine. This one says, our three-year-old has always been very needy for us in the night. We've had to gate and now lock her in a room as we can't stand co-sleeping. Uh, with a few nights uh, nights of tough love, she settles into a regular full night, peaceful sleep. Yep. But, of course, as happens with three-year-olds, every time they get sick, we fold on the tough love, the routine gets broken. We also find that she's frequently congested at night time, it says. There's no wheezing, but there's clearly something going on. Do we go to a doctor or a specialist with this? Yeah, I think if there's anything like wheezing, even if it is psychological because the child's distressed, she wants to be with her parents, you know, they don't like co-sleeping, but I think their child might. <laughs> you know, they can bring on symptoms like that. But just because we might think it's psychosomatic doesn't mean you should get a doctor to check it out. So if she's you know, having any trouble breathing, there's wheeziness, I'd definitely get a doctor to look mm. at that. Because the, co- the, the, the co-sleeping thing is really big, isn't it? Because, um, yeah. you know, so many... Cultures do have a big co-sleeping um, right. element more to people, them. More yeah. people in the world co-sleep than don't co-sleep. So it's more common for humans to sleep with their parents than not to. It's just that in the sort of you know um, European world, um, we don't do it as much. Interesting stuff. Look, thank you so much for your time. That is Nathan Wallace there, parenting expert, also neuroplasticity educator.